Good morning. So this idea of Global Gospel Advancement Week, um, you know, there, there are different reasons and, and different things that happen during Global Gospel, during, during this week. Um, but one of the things that's happened this week, and I think a great reminder is, sometimes we're introduced to neighbors that um, we don't think of and that we don't remember are our neighbors. And then we get to see people um, who pour out their lives in love for those neighbors as Christ would have us do. And we've been privileged to have the Granberries with us, uh, Chris and Mary. So this is our final day here. Um, I think Chris is going to tell you a little bit about this evening. Uh, but can we give them a warm Scots welcome on their final day? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, uh, I've asked Chaplain Lowe to stay, stay here for a minute because uh, I want to do something uh, in native uh, culture, at least, uh, I think everywhere, but at least where we are, uh, my family has really been amazed uh, by the hospitality and the generosity of the people. Uh, and one of the things that's a tradition in native culture is gift giving. And uh, so I wanted to say thank you uh, to Chaplain Lowe and to all of you. So I don't have one for everybody, but uh, this is uh, for Chaplain Lowe and for all of you guys too. Thank you for having us. Uh, this week. It's been really, really good. All right. You're welcome. So that, that's a medallion that was made by one of the young ladies in our church. Um, her name is Felicia, but everybody calls her Fishy. And uh, hopefully you'll get to meet Fishy one day. If you come to the res, you definitely will. She helps lead worship on Sundays, and she works with teenagers, and she's really involved uh, in the church. Um, well, as Chaplain Lowe mentioned, tonight we have some, uh, another special get-together. Last night we had some pizza and hung out for a couple hours and watched some videos. Uh, tonight we're going to have an ice cream, like a build-your-own ice cream Sunday thing. We're planning on meeting in Brock 120, uh, so we'd love for you to come do that. We have root beer for root beer floats and all kind of Coke floats and all that stuff, and ice cream with all the toppings and fixings and all that good stuff. So, uh, what time? 7 o'clock, from 7 to 9 in Brock 120. Um, and we'd love for you guys to come, and we're just going to visit. Um, this morning, actually, um, is a tough talk. Um, I think I've agonized more over this talk than any talk I've ever given, maybe. Uh, and the reason is, some of the students said to me, um, you know, we, we know the history between... America and Native America. We know the history between the U.S. and, the, and the, the Native American people. We know a little bit maybe of the history between the church and Native America as well, but at the same time it's kind of a situation where we, we know but we don't really know. Um, and we don't really know the situation on the reservation today uh, and how all of this has played out and where, where our first neighbors are now and the situation that they're in. And uh, I've really never given a talk, believe it or not, I've never given a talk on the history between Native America and the United States uh, and Native America and the church. Um, and you would think I would have by now. Uh, it's a really, really difficult talk to give. Uh, and part, I'm saying this partly to introduce this, but also to say tonight <laughs> at the ice cream party, I'm only going to tell you happy stories, okay? I have several happy stories that I haven't gotten to share with you yet, and tonight I'm going to tell those stories. Um, but this morning, uh, I have quite a bit of bad news 
And uh, I want to assure you that I have no desire to make anyone here feel guilty. I think that guilt and shame are really bad motivators. Uh, One of the main reasons that I'm here this week is because I want to motivate all of you to get involved in some way in loving your first neighbors well. And so I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty or ashamed, but I do think we need to know the truth of the history that's there. And these are things that our first neighbors know. These are stories they know about. And all I can really do is give you essentially bullet points or kind of a timeline and hit some of the low spots, basically. When I first put this together, it was 26 pages long. And to give you, and that's just a, (laughs) that was an overview of the history. Um, And to give you an idea, my talk yesterday was two-thirds of a page. Uh, And so I had 26 pages. And then I worked on it. I got it down to 22 pages. This morning I got up really early. It jumped back up to 25 pages. And I finally got it back down to five. So if you want the original 26 or whatever, I'm happy to send that to you by email. I'm going to do my best to kind of summarize some of the history that's here. And we're going to try our best to end on a good note. So essentially I've got bad news but there's some good news coming, so hang in there with me. Um, So one thing I need to start with is a confession. Uh, I have been working in Native America for over 13 years, but I've never successfully read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown. Hopefully you're familiar with that book, but if you're not familiar, please write that down. If, if, If you don't remember anything else that we talked about this week, please remember the name of that book, Go find it. You can get it for a dollar at a lot of used bookstores. It's an it's a American history from the native perspective, but it's written by a non-Indian man, a white man. Uh, he actually grew up in the South. His name is D. Brown. Uh, and it's a very accurate, reliable uh, telling of American history and westward expansion in particular uh, from a reliable historian. Okay? So I would really highly encourage you to read that book. Some of the information I'll share with you comes from that book, but I've never made it through the book. Um, I tried to read it after we moved to the reservation, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't handle it emotionally. Uh, I made it to page 115, uh, and I couldn't go any further. Just couldn't handle, couldn't handle the truth. So part of the reason that today's talk is so difficult is because I'm still trying to wrap my head and my heart around a lot of what I'm reading. Tim Keller said in a, in a sermon one time that often, even as believers, we know something to be true, but then we don't know it because we don't want to know it, right? He talked about a father and a son, and the son was kind of going off the rails, and everybody else knew it, but the father didn't know it, even though he knew it, because he didn't want to know it. And I think for a lot of us, that's our attitude toward Native America. We know there's a really bad history there, but we don't know because we don't want to know. But one of the little phrases we've been talking about the last couple days is this quote from Alistair Begg. You'll remember this. He says, we will never go forward effectively until we learn to view the past properly. So as believers, as the church, we really have no hope 
of effectively reaching out to our first neighbors if we refuse to look at the history. Does that make sense? That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Not trying to make folks feel guilty, not trying to make you depressed, but we need to take a look. We need to take an honest look at the past if we want to love our first neighbors well and move forward together in some way. So, the story, relationship between, we could go all the way back, really if you want to, just Google Native American timeline and you'll find the stuff I'm talking about and more. Um, Christopher Columbus, here's what he said about the Native people that he met. He said, so tractable, tractable, I had to look that up, tractable means easy to control and influence. So tractable and peaceable are these people that I swear to you, there's not a better nation in the world. They love their neighbors as themselves. Uh, and their discourse is ever sweet and gentle and accompanied with a smile. And though it's true that they're naked and yet, they're, yet their manners are decorous and praiseworthy. So then he goes on to say, they could easily be commanded and made to work and sew and do whatever might be needed to build towns and be taught to wear clothes and adopt our ways. That was his assessment. Uh, soon after that, he proceeded to kidnap 10 of the native people he was talking about and take them back to Spain where they could be taught the Spanish ways. One of them died soon after arriving there, but not before he was baptized as a Christian. The Spaniards were pleased uh, that they were the first ones to make it possible for an Indian to enter heaven, and so they hastened to spread the good news throughout the West Indies. At first, the native people in that area did not resist conversion to the Europeans' religion, but they did resist strongly when hordes of these bearded strangers began scouring the islands in search of gold and precious stones. The Spaniards looted and burned villages. They kidnapped hundreds of men, women, and children, shipped them back to Europe to be sold as slaves. When the people resisted, this brought on the use of guns and sabers, and whole tribes were destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in less than 10 years after Columbus set foot uh, on the beach in San Salvador in 1492. That's a brief look at history with explorers. If you, you can go look, there's a lot more, a whole lot more. The first massacre on American soil uh, was uh, done by one of the explorers in 1549 or something like that, 100 people killed. Um, if you move forward, so you, you could go history with the explorers if you want to. If you want to come forward, you could go history with colonists between Native America and the colonists. Um, there were some really good interactions. There were times of peace, uh, but there was also a lot of really bad stuff. This one was one I had never heard of. Uh, when the Dutch landed on Manhattan Island, they bought it for $60 in fish hooks and glass beads. Not long after that, they levied a tax on one of the tribes in the area. Um, and then there was some sort of offense that was committed actually by white settlers, but it was blamed on that tribe. Um, and so soldiers, Dutch soldiers, were sent to arrest some of the tribal members uh, and in the process killed four tribal members. So then the tribal members killed four Dutch people. The Dutch soldiers then retaliated um, with uh, running bayonets through men, women, and children, hacking their bodies to pieces, leveling the villages with fire. And for two more centuries, these events were, were repeated again and again. 
as European colonists moved inward. And that's true. Again, a lot of that comes from Dee Brown. Uh, and you'll see a pattern uh, of interaction between colonists and settlers and Native Americans that's very similar to that, where something happens, it escalates, it escalates, and an entire village, sometimes an entire tribe, is completely wiped out. Uh, if you move forward, we can go all the way, we'll move forward to 1845. I think this is a key moment, uh, a very damaging idea takes root called Manifest Destiny. Uh, John O'Sullivan was a writer who coined the phrase, and he said, Our manifest destiny is to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. The term and the concept were taken up by those desiring to secure the Oregon Territory, where we live now, uh, California, Mexican land in the Southwest, etc. O'Sullivan, it says, had stumbled upon a broadly held national sentiment, and although, a, and then it became a rallying cry as well as a rationale. And it was actually adopted and accepted by both political parties at the time, Manifest Destiny. The idea was God had decreed that all of the United States, that this whole territory, actually belonged to uh, folks from Anglo-Saxon descent, and we should go out there and take it and use it and make the most of it. Um, you can even track this idea all the way back to the 1500s uh, with a papal bull uh, called the Doctrine of Discovery, and that's where some of these ideas come from. Um, there was a critic, a, a, a book critic, who wrote some powerful, powerful things about D. Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. This was written in 1971. He said the Indian wars in this book are shown to be the dirty murders that they were. Uh, Douglas Martin of the New York Times said the racism and wanton carelessness of whites in the betrayal and killings they perpetrated were relentless, relentless themes for D. Brown, who was white himself. D. Brown said what surprised me most as he did study on all this was how much the Indians believed the white men over and over again. Their trust in authority was amazing. They never seemed to believe anyone could lie. He also said, to the Indians it seemed like the Europeans hated everything in nature. The living forests, the birds, the beasts, the grassy glades, the water, the soil, the air itself. Uh, it felt to native people like everything was under attack um, as colonization happened and westward expansion happened from their perspective. If you move on to 1938, oh, sorry, 1838, you have the Trail of Tears, 17,000 Cherokee people removed from their home territory, 4,000 people died on the way to the territory allotted for them. After the march, another 4,000 or so passed away as a result of the forced march. Uh, and then within a year, half of those survivors again, the ones that have survived all that. So a total of about 8,500 Cherokee people out of the original 17,000 passed away as a direct result of the Trail of Tears. And by the way, they say they call it the Trail of Tears because non-Indians lined the way and wept as the Cherokee people passed through. Um, interesting, too, that there were actually Presbyterian missionaries who had started a mission not far from here. 
that was ex- incredibly successful. And I, I forget which president it was that visited, but he said, this is the model. This is the way we should interact with Native America all over the country, just like this. But then uh, Andrew Jackson came into power. The Trail of Tears happened. The missionaries from that mission station went on the Trail of Tears with the people. Uh, Two of the young single men got sick on the way and had to double back, and they came back to Chattanooga and started First Presbyterian Church. Uh, and that's, that's part of the history of First Pres, if I have it all right. Is that right? Oh, good. I'm getting nods over here. That's good. So the Trail of Tears, 1838. At the same time, the Navajos were moved from their homeland to eastern New Mexico. Uh, and all of, if you combine all of the different trails they had to take to get there from different places, they call it the Long Walk. And it combined a 400-mile-long series of marches involving 8,000 men, women, and children. Other nations were moved from their original territory, including the Chickasaw, the Shawnee, the Osage, Kickapoo, Choctaw, Seminole, Creek, Sauk, Fox, Dakota, and others were relocated from their homelands to new territory. Um, We could go on and on about massacres. One of the Indian chiefs said, "When, when we fight U.S. soldiers, if they win, it's a victory. If we win, it's a massacre. But in reality, the massacres usually involved U.S. soldiers overrunning a lot of times old people and women and children. A good example is the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, 675 soldiers, U.S. soldiers led by uh, Colonel John Chivington, who was a Methodist pastor, killed more than 200 uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho villagers mostly elderly men, women, and, chil- and then children. Um, in the midst of it, their chief, uh, Black Kettle, raised an American flag and a white flag as symbols of peace. And people gathered under the flags only to be mowed down. Uh, Chivington ordered his troops to take no prisoners and to set fire to the village, uh, forcing the survivors out into the open where they could be killed Uh, Chivington and his troops paraded uh, mutilated body parts of men, women, and children uh, in downtown Denver as a celebration. There's more massacres. I'll let you look look them up if you want to. Um, 1879, the idea of Indian boarding schools was established. And this part of the history is particularly painful uh, for Native people and for believers because the various denominations partnered with the federal government to establish Indian boarding schools for children. Uh, Keep in mind, in 1879, the United States was still at war with many parts of Native America. But they established boarding schools. Uh, The man in charge of this was an Army officer named Richard Pratt, um, and he based the educational program on a program he had developed in an Indian prison And that's essentially what the boarding schools were. Uh, Children were taken from their families by force, without consent, and were hauled far away to these schools. Uh, They cut the children's hair. They dressed them in uniforms. It was a military-style school. They weren't allowed to speak their language. Uh, They were forced to uh, speak English. They were given Christian names. 
Uh, and that's why a lot of names in Native America don't match the people that you're meeting. Um, I've mentioned Wendell. Hannigan is a good friend of ours. Believe me, his ancestors were not Hannigans. <laughs> um, many of the children were named things like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and that sort of thing because the people giving the names thought that was cute. Um, they were also named after the disciples and lots of uh, Bible names. A lot of people, if, you could, if they couldn't pronounce the last name of the native child, they would give them a name like Bob or Jim or Joe or Bill just to make it easy. So Richard Pratt, who founded uh, the first of these schools, had an amazing quote. He gave it in a speech in 1892. He said, in general, people say that the only good Indian is a dead one. And in, in a sense, I agree with this. But really what he was saying, the quote, his famous slogan that all the boarding schools, 150 or so boarding schools, believed was you have to kill the Indian to save the child. So a lot of military people in that time would say the only good Indian's a dead Indian. And the people running the boarding school said, well, yeah, you have to kill the Indian to save the child. You have to separate the child from their culture. So a lot of people call it um, cultural genocide when they talk about uh, the boarding schools. Um, by 1900, thousands of children were attending close to 150 boarding schools throughout the United States. The schools sought to strip children of their culture and remove them from the influence of their family and their nation. We know people who were in these boarding schools. The heyday of the boarding schools was actually in the 1970s, believe it or not. Um, and we know a lot of elders who, many, many, many elders who went to these boarding schools. And so you can imagine the scenario. They would be taken from their home when they were five years old, taken hundreds of miles away from their home, put in a boarding school until they were about 18 or 19, and then they had completed the program. Then they were sent back. They didn't go home in the summers. They didn't go home on holidays. They were in the school from age five to 19, then sent back to the town where they came from. Well, a lot of the relatives they had known before had passed away. Now the child didn't speak their language, they didn't know their culture. They didn't know the customs, the traditions, etc. They were completely bewildered. They were prepared for a life that wasn't sustainable in their hometown. Um, and in essence, generations were lost. Generations and generations have been lost. The first time I went to White Swan, the first time I was on the reservation, that was one of my big questions is what happened here? How did it get this way? I didn't know the history. I didn't know about the boarding schools. I didn't know any of this. And all of this is part of the answer to that question. I could keep going, but I can't. I gotta skip ahead. Um, today on the reservation where we are, unemployment rate in the wintertime is 73%. Um, only 50, uh, only 57 percent of the students graduate on average from high school. Two years ago, the dropout rate went down to 78 percent in the town where we work. 75 percent of the teenagers in our town are technically homeless. Um, the graduation rate from the tribal school is only 20 percent. Uh, the dropout rate for children 
in the elementary school are, is 650 times higher than the national average. Uh, alcoholism mortality rates 514 times higher, I'm sorry, 514% higher, five times higher, uh, than the general population in America. Violent deaths account for 75% of the deaths of young people between the ages of 12 and 20. Again, we could go on and on. Poverty rates are sky high. Suicide rates are sky high. Um, Wendell uh, says, if you look at socioeconomic indicators for Native America, if something is good for you, Native American people are at the bottom of those socioeconomic indicators. If something's bad for you, Native American people are at the very top. The FBI says the most dangerous person to be in America today is a Native American male. Uh, the person most likely to die a violent death in America today is a Native American male. So what's the point of all this? Um, I wanted us to get to the Good Samaritan. You guys know the story. I'm not going to read it to you. But our first neighbors are in desperate shape. Essentially beaten, robbed, killed, or left for dead on the side of the road. Right? Um, when we look at the Good Samaritan at that story, I think a lot of times we ask, who am I in the story? Am I like the priest, the Levite, or am I like the Samaritan? That's not a bad question, but it's a really bad first question. The first question should be, who is Jesus, right? The parables are about Jesus. So if we say, okay, well, wait, well, Jesus is the Samaritan. Then we say, who am I? Well, I'm the guy in the ditch, right? Jesus stopped. The Samaritan stopped at the risk of his life to lift the man out of the ditch and take care of him and love him. Jesus stopped at the expense of his life for you and me. And he says in that parable, go and do likewise. Remember, the man's asking the question, who is my neighbor? For us, a big part of the answer has to be <laughs> Native Americans. We talked about the three. I know a lot of this may or may not be controversial. It's certainly uncomfortable. Um, three non-controversial facts. Number one, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. We know that. Nobody argues about that. Number two, the very first neighbors of the American church are Native Americans. And number three, our first neighbors are in desperate shape. We have to reach out to them in love. It's not optional. How do we do it? That's a great thing for us to talk about. I've had several students ask me, what can I do right here, right now, on top of this mountain uh, for Native America? Um, I heard a professor saying, I've never even met a Native American, as far as I know. What can we do? And he, he wasn't saying that in a happy way. He was saying, we're ready, what can we do? I would suggest the first thing to do is pray and ask the Lord. That's a big, somebody asked me, what have you been learning from the Lord lately? I said, ask. That little three-letter word has been rolling around in my head a lot lately. So let's start there. Let's go to the Lord and say, Lord, I do, I do feel a burden for my first neighbors. I hear what Chris is saying. You know, I, 
you know, maybe I want to punch him in the nose, but I also kind of want to figure this out. Like, what can I possibly do to love my first neighbors well? Uh, how can I take some ownership of this? How can I have some sort of sense of burden uh, with this? Let's just start by asking the Lord and, and saying, Lord, I, I want to move in that direction. One thing I can tell you is not going to happen overnight. If this begins to take root in your heart, and if this begins to change your life, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a long process. Our neighbors didn't get where they are overnight. The answers to the situation are not simple. When I speak at a church or a seminary or a college and somebody comes up to me and they say, you know, why don't they just, it doesn't matter what they say next, it is laughable and infuriating <laughs> like it is not a simple problem it is extremely complicated there are a lot of incredibly smart strong native people if this was easy they would have figured it out without us i mean they, you know like this is not simple it's not there's no easy in fact i don't think we can fix this that's something else that a lot of us in mainstream America, we're kind of addicted to fixing things. If you try to approach Native America with that mindset, you're not going to last very long at all. Um, we can't fix it. But we can love our first neighbors. What does that look like? I know what some of it looks like for me. It's changing all the time. What does it look like for you to love your first neighbors? I would encourage you, get a copy of that book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and read it before you go to the reservation. Because <laughs> once you get there, it's too late. You won't make it through it. So what does it look like? It's going to take a lot of listening. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of money. People are going to have to be willing to take some major risks. We're going to have to be willing to fail. Some folks may have to be willing to die. The reservation, obviously, is not a safe place to be. There's a lot of ways to lose your life out there. It's going to hurt to really understand the history, to love our neighbors, to know where they're coming from. It's going to hurt a lot. We're going to have to absorb some of the pain and suffering that they're dealing with. We're going to have to study. We're going to have to be patient. Chief Dan George has an amazing quote. He became a Christian late in life, and he said this, When Christ said that a man does not live by bread alone, he spoke of a hunger. This hunger was not the hunger of the body. It was the, not the hunger for bread. He spoke of a hunger that begins deep down in the very depths of our being. He spoke of a need that is as vital as breath. He spoke of our hunger for love. Love is something you and I must have. We must have it because our spirit feeds on it. We must have it because without it we become weak and faint. Without love, our self-esteem weakens. Without it, our courage fails. Without love, we can no longer look confidently out at the world. But with love, we are creative. With it, we march tirelessly. With it and with it alone, we're able to sacrifice for others. If you have experienced the love of Jesus, the ultimate Good Samaritan, if you have experienced that love and you're aware of that love, 
you're going to long deep in your soul to share that love with your neighbors who are suffering. There's a way to do it. Ask the Lord, what does it look like? Maybe a quick visit to the res for a week, maybe a summer, maybe longer. We need full-time people. Uh, we, are, <laughs> we are overrun with good things on the res right now, with opportunities. To, we have more children coming, more teenagers coming. We have more teenagers in our little town wanting to be discipled than we have people to do it. Uh, we're running as hard as we can and barely keeping up. We need more people. We need more people to be praying. We need smart, creative, talented people like you guys to jump in. I'd encourage you to pray about it. Ask the Lord, what can I do? How can I love my first neighbors well? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. I think about Isaiah 58 again and how you tell us not to turn our back on our own flesh and blood. I think about Micah 6, 8 telling us how you have shown us what is good and what you require of us, and surely you have. All of us, Lord, were beaten and robbed and left for dead. We were dead in our sins and transgressions on the side of the road. And everybody with any common sense passed by on the other side and didn't even give us a second thought but you came and you gave everything you had to reach down into that ditch and pull us out at the expense of your life Lord I pray that you would fill us with love like that fill us with faith and courage Lord it's, it's time it's time for our Native American brothers and sisters to be welcomed in to the kingdom and into our family, for us to love them, for them to experience your love through us and hear your truth in the context of your love. Lord, please uh, make it so and use us, each and every one, however you see fit. In your name we pray. Amen. peace.